Hello from the internet. In this festive episode, we shall be discussing the twelve days of Christmas. Actually, no, we're not going to be discussing anything like that. We shall be discussing the twelve-factor application. Are your applications ready for continuous and robust deployment? No. There will be after this episode, in which I, Mark Drew, and my Santa's little helper, Rob Dudley, discuss what you need to launch an effective, clean, and more importantly, festive application. Let's get on with the show. Ho 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 ho. Live from the internet, it's the Local Host Podcast with Mark Drew and Rob Dudley. Well, hello, Rob. How are you doing, sir? Happy Christmas. Hello, Mark. Happy Christmas-ish. It's, it's weird, because we're recording this before Christmas, but pretending it's already Christmas. We've time-travelled to 23 days or so ahead, and uh, wishing all of our audiences a happy holidays, uh, which is a, well, happy Christmas, uh, or whatever celebration you're having at this time of Winter Solstice Day. Um, I don't, happy Saturnalia. Yeah. Um, for our happy Hanukkah. Um, I don't know, there are probably hundreds. Yep. Anyway, yes. Um, joined together around the world in celebration of the fact that it's... Cold. Still quite cold, and we just need to eat more. Yep. Uh, and keep well-fed, if you can. Very important. So, how are you doing? It's, it's nice... Uh, there's no snow here yet. There was a bit of snow this week. How is Jersey? Do you get? Do you know what snow is down there? Um, we did, we know what it is. We don't like it. Um, it's very unlikely that we're going to get any snow much before February. Um, but yeah, so it's it's cold. There is a brisk northerly wind. Um, Sorry about it's, that. It's quite wet. It's yeah. Basically, it's a bit grim down south. <laughs> Good. I'm happy that your your sunshine island is getting grim weather. It satisfies my soul in some ways. There's nothing more sad than the uh, the sight of tropical palm trees just whipping in a force seven northerly <laughs> gale. What I, it's actually kind of funny, like what I can see straight from here, which you can't see because I'd have to switch the 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 video all the way around, is actually I have a palm tree growing in my garden. So literally, what I can see out of my my window are palm trees all year round. So I can pretend I am actually in an island paradise, which you don't have to pretend. No. <laughs> so, twelve factor applications. Yes, I thought it was a quite topical topic since we've been talking about the different parts about twelve factor applications. We have kind of been talking about it during this whole year, so I thought we'd wrap up the year and actually put it all together. And it by putting all those things that we've been talking about, such as Docker and environments and all the other things and, and version control and and things that we've touched on all throughout the year. There is a list called the 12 factor app, or there's a concept called the 12 factor app. Um, but its definition is how to build an app, or what, what not, not how to build an app, it, it doesn't care how you build your applications, but it's how you structure an application so that it's portable and easy to deploy. Yeah, and specifically this is talking about web-based kind of software as a service applications, right? right? So, I mean, important parts of, of, of software that, that's deployed like that is that, one, it's easy to deploy, for sure, but also it's easy to scale. And in scalability comes 
many factors, excuse the pun, but and some of them are delineated in, in this list. So if we go through the list, we can find out what we need to put in place so that we can scale our application easily and we don't have problems later on. And maybe on the way, discover the true meaning of Christmas. <laughs> if only, if only. So what's under the tree in number one on the 12-factor application list? I'm going to stop with the Christmas jokes, by the yeah, way, just, okay. just so you're aware. And this yeah, isn't a countdown. We're not going to go like the 12, you know, on the 12th day of our 12-factor app my true love gave to me. One yeah, code base. zero singing. Yeah, sorry. No singing. I did speak that. I did not, you know. Uh, it was close. It was close. There, I, there I was, was about to break into song. It was a tremor. Never fear. We won't break into song. So, yeah, the first part of our 12-factor app is code base. So we have one code base tracked by version revision control or version control with way to do many deployments from it. So this hits on the idea of, I would guess, Gitflow. Have we talked about Gitflow? I'm pretty sure we've we've had an episode that we talked about Gitflow. We've lightly touched upon it, and we've you know we talked about version control in a lot of different episodes. What have you? Um, Basically, this means exactly what it says. Put your code in version control, use it, uh, and use it in such a way that it means that you can make many deployments. Right, but it's also, I think, uh, one part of it is that the important part is that you have a branch in your version control that you know is a production branch. Yeah. So it doesn't stop so you keep the, on developing. master branch or, yeah. Right. Uh, you can have revision branches or... Uh, um, or release branches, excuse me, not revision branches, but you, you can then swap, swap back. To, so if someone says there's a problem on live, you don't actually go onto the live uh, site. You can actually just check out what you know is literally on the live server because your development environment should be n as near as damn it identical to the live environment. You know, and you get data feedback, but uh, going yeah, to so in terms of environment, I think we come on to that in a minute. Right. Um, but yeah, and it doesn't have to be Git flow. You could run um, a Git branching model, but the key tenet here is, as you rightly point out, is making sure that you have a production branch that is the code that is either currently in production or will almost immediately after be in production. Right. Um, yeah. So uh, and. One thing with the Git branching model, or I think I think you can do it in other version controls. I haven't used other version control systems for quite a while. I think Git, Git's been the king of the roost for a long time. But it's the ability to be able to not just branch, but also tag. So the moment you've um, deployed to live, you can have your live or master branch that's going to to live. But you actually have a tag saying this is the, this is the code that's actually on live. This is at this this point. So without over egging the eggnog, I think that's that's the simplest way to describe the first part of a twelve factor app. Have your version control. Right. Yep. There will be, um, as some of our listeners are probably picking up, there will be some of these that you you're listening to and you're thinking, well, duh. Well hopefully they're thinking um, duh. Yeah. Some of this stuff does seem a little bit obvious, but bear with. Uh, and you will hopefully see as it all comes together that using all 12 of these these points will help you build better applications. Right. So what's the next part, Rob? What's number two? The next part, I quite like this one. Um, I quite like all of it, but this one specifically um, deals with dependencies and making sure that the dependencies in your application are explicitly declared and isolated. Okay. So let's... So, 
let's take you know the legacy example of how not to do this. You've got your your cold fusion application. It's got some some Java libraries that just kind of kick around in source control and right. they're, they're, they're Java loaded in, right? Yeah. Um, uh, that's not what this is about. Instead, this is about pretty much any modern language these days has the ability to have some form of manifest file that can then be fed into a dependency management or package management system. That means that, in theory, you can load those packages in at compile time or what have you. You get specific versions, so you can pin them. Mm -hmm. Um, and it means that basically your application is your application, your dependencies are completely isolated and separate, and all you need is this, whether it's a, a, a composer config file in PHP or, or a gem file in, in Ruby or and in, uh, a package.json. And in ColdFusion nowadays, we have uh, yep. a box.json file, which is similar to the NPM yep. that has all your dependencies. So I, I could hear... The, a whole bunch of Cold Fusion developers shouting at me, going, Cold Fusion's not a legacy! Uh, but, and it isn't Sorry, no, how you not. should use it. It's <laughs> no, absolutely. And to be fair, the example that I gave, you can apply it to any other language. Right. It's where you basically you pull the dependency in and it just sits in a folder somewhere, right. Which uh, is rather than actually being declared in a configuration file that allows you to then just load it externally. Yeah, and, it's not, and the point about it is that what you get in a lot of systems, and I've encountered this actually with uh, jQuery, for example, in an app that people would just load in different versions of jQuery because they couldn't up upgrade another part or something like that into their web app, is that when you go to your dependency file, whether it be a box.json, a package.json, or whatever the Ruby uses, or whatever uh, PHP uses, which is composer files, isn't it? Yeah, I think it's a composer.json. Okay, the old JSON. It's amazing how many of them just use JSON. Yeah. yeah does Maven use XML? Uh, yes. Amazing. <laughs> it's, it, it's so retro, it's going to become new again. Um, but the whole point is that you have the Semver um, versioning. So you have, like, I have a dependency, dependency on jQuery at one point whatever. Right, so you know that you, that's what your app needs to be using, and this is important because it comes back to your programming model. So, like when you're looking up documentation on that external library, you know exactly which version you're using. Uh, I'm going to be looking at you, Bootstrap four versus Bootstrap three and versus Bootstrap one. I believe massive changes between them, right? Or oh, jQuery's introduced some fairly significant breaking changes over the years, right? So exactly. So if you know, and at the moment I've, I've, and I've had to do this is actually go into those files, those minified files that are just loitering around on your, on your uh, assets folder, and try to see that hopefully there's a comment at the top of it telling me which version it is, so I can look up a that hasn't been stripped out by the minification. <laughs> exactly. So if you have this in a package for, um, manager, it helps you that way as well as the fact that it, it's something that's outside of your version control, that it keeps your, your version control clean except at point of build. Yeah. Now, obviously, there, there again, you know, some people will be listening going, well, that's fairly obvious. Um, the big thing here that I quite like about this is it allows you to manage your dependencies much more intuitively, and it means that you can avoid something that I, I don't think I coined this phrase, but I'm just going to claim it anyway. It meant you can avoid dependency rot. 
So this is where you've got dependencies scattered through the system, like your multiple versions of jQuery or your ancient uh, library that's just kicking around in source control. You can see at a glance exactly what dependencies your system has, what versions they have, and how far behind that may be the current version. Um, and basically, it makes it much, much easier for you to maintain your application's dependency on these third parties because let's face it we all write perfect coke right right it's all those other guys that get it wrong um that are screwing stuff up um and you know security uh vectors through um external or third-party packages are a big deal um being able to easily manage and and switch and, and upgrade and, and all of the rest of the stuff that comes with this is critical to building a decent web application right um, so now we've got all of our all of our dependencies in check. Our dependencies are in a row. <laughs> all our dependencies. Uh, our ducks. Uh, the next thing is um, configuration. Um, yep. I have a lot to say about this. Uh, whenever, so before we get into the con configuration, I want you to go onto GitHub and look for AWS token. Right. Or SSH key. SSH key and things like that, right? So this is a configuration that leaks into your source code because you need to connect to MailChimp, you need to connect to AWS to S3 to store stuff. So what you put somewhere in your code, you put you know request dot AWS S3 dot you know AWS token and the secret key, and you paste it in the code. And before you finish on the Friday night, you check it all in. And it all goes into GitHub, and everyone can see you has now access to AWS. Yes. Um, which you're one step closer, but not quite there yet. So the next step is uh, is uh, config is storing the config in the environment, which is in the environment variable. So the machine has access to that, and that's it. The code just references go and get me this environment variable, right? Mm -hmm. And this is every programming language under the sun, near as damn it, supports direct access to environment variables or some form of shim that allows you to, to right. do the same, yeah? So um, I think with Meteor, what you were able to do in one settings file was both access the environment stuff, but also have like different settings files for your live and for your for your development, for example, that you didn't check in, right? You put those as, as, as ignored files as that you didn't check in for anything, right? And like, as Rob says, every programming language will have a way for you to access environment variables. Now, there are some uh, problems with this because now you have your keys in an, in the bash profile file or somewhere like that, and you want to centralize some of those. So you get these ideas of vaults. So one of them is Vault by HashiCorp, and I know that AWS gives you access to this. So you can actually say, when you build up your environment, AWS will go, hey, you've got the credentials for this environment, I'm gonna get, I'm gonna pre-populate the environment variables for you. So you, as a user, never see what they are. Yeah, so this takes the next step in terms of, because storing this stuff um, in the uh, environment is really easy to do, just taking a quick step back. As you said, you can have them in your bash RC, you can have an init script. A lot of languages also support some kind of bootstrapping system whereby you can have a, a .env file, right. um, which can contain these key value pairs, because that's all these are, right? They're, they're right. key value. Um, and again, make sure you do not put that in version control. Um, but 
at the same time, your production stuff, you probably don't want to just have floating around. You don't even want your very trusted devs having access to it. So the next stage is being able to say, actually, we need some way of securing these environment variables and still granting access to them. And that's where stuff like Vault by HashiCorp comes in. I think Rails has got it built in internally. They've got a, a secret manager. Okay. Um, and other languages have different options and different ways of handling it. Uh, Vault is language agnostic, right? Uh, yeah, it's yeah. just a command line. Um, um, but it allows you to basically say, because let's put it this way, if you've got keys that give you read-write access to your S3 bucket, then anybody who has those keys can delete everything in your S3 bucket. Right, or exactly. can put stuff in there or what have you. So you want to make sure that even though we trust our developers implicitly, best practice dictates that we keep them separate and secured. And also, by using environment files, means that you can have an environment that is the same in development or behaves the same in development as it does in, in production, right? So you could, uh, for example, give people access to AWS services in a different location, in a different database that is just for the developers, right? Yes, yeah, so as an example. Them like a sandbox S3 bucket, you're still interacting with live S3. It's still got all of the same you know, uh, module requirements and all the same network overhead. It's, it's as close to the real deal as you can possibly get, but it's isolated and separate, and it's accessed, most importantly, programmatically in exactly the same way. You're not having to think, well, ooh, there's a, a facade here that just writes it back to the file system. Or, right, um, but, and it, it works really quickly, funnily enough. I don't know what's slow in production. Perf yeah. What are you talking about? Performance on uploads? They're, they're brilliant yeah. on my machine. And, mm. and you know, this takes me away a little bit from this whole um, having to replicate really difficult systems. It's now easy because our, our systems are in the cloud or using services in the cloud that we can replicate quite cheaply because it's, it's pay-per-use, generally. Yeah. Right. So, for example, in one project, I'm using DynamoDB. Right. I'm literally using AWS's DynamoDB. I mean, because I'm doing, like, very few writes, it costs me pennies, you know. It's going to cost me a lot more in production, but it's it, it doesn't matter about using it so is is any developer can be using those kind of resources with without any problems so having environment files where we have like a, a on, on a simplest basis right you have a mysql database which you can have locally or you can have in the cloud right with rds and let's say okay well we're just going to use it in the cloud in rds you know there are problems with that because you want to be mobile you know you when you're coding on an airplane you can't get aws but it means that everyone's experiencing the same latency. That everyone's experiencing the same how your system would be behaving. Yeah, and it's pinned to exactly the same versions. You know, you don't have to worry about incompatibilities. Right. Um, yeah, it's basically critical that your configuration is managed through the environment. And in that configuration, this brings us to the next part, which is backing services, right? So we have so our dependency. Backing service. Well, you, a backing service would be the database. It'll be the mail server. It'll be I don't know Mailchimp or something like that that you'd be using as a an external service. LDAP is a backing yep. service, right? RabbitMQ, RabbitMQ, or anything like that. Now, the whole point about backing services is to treat them as it says here to treat them as attached resources, and in other words, you treat them by, 
by the same way in different environments. It's not that you have a login or anything like that. Is well, you do have a login, but you request them via a URL. They have an address that you can swap out in your config that we've just talked about, right? So you always treat them the same. It's not, in other words, and you're going, well, how else would you treat them? Well, think of the monolith, right? You you treat it like, well, I need to have this application. I need to have Cold Fusion. I need to have IIS, and I need to have MSSQL on the same server. Otherwise, it doesn't work, right? Yeah. Um, but if I, but in a twelve-factor app, you could have IIS on one server, Cold Fusion on a whole bunch of servers, get attaching to. MSSQL on other servers, and it wouldn't care how you rearrange things because it's all about the addressing of those attached resources. Yeah, and I think the obvious takeaway here would be MySQL is a good one for this, especially on a Unix or Nixy style environment. Right? Are you accessing your MySQL server via a .soc file? Okay. Are you accessing right. it via a local socket? If you are, you're not doing this right. You need to access it via an IP address, a host name, a port, and what have you, and then it becomes swappable. Or better yet, you need to be actually using, um, as we said, a, a sandboxed version of, of the same resource that you'd use in production. Um, so making sure that these things are externalized is kind of really, really important to building a decent, scalable application. Right. Um I think that's it for that. I, I can't think of it. Like, for example, if you have mail servers, you you know, on your development environment, you'd have a mail server that doesn't actually send stuff out. I use fakemail.py. And you, how your... Yeah, or mail catcher it, or mail hog or right. other providers are available. <laughs> In your area. Um, but you'd be using it the same way, right? You'd just be using it by address, right? Yep. It's like localhost 8085 for... for, for um, uh, fake mail, but and you pass in username and password for your SMTP, right? Uh, and that's it. You just change those variables out, and it should still work the same. It shouldn't be going, well, actually, I th there should be something else installed here. I do have one here that is actually, it's we kind of spoke about it earlier, but it, it's worth pointing out, and this often grabs newbie developers by the throat and swings them around. Your file system is a backing service. Okay. If you are writing files back, if you are storing uploads or what have you, that also falls under this point. Gotcha. Yeah, um, exactly. So, so you, should... you know, use S3, use an external NFS or ClusterFS or God knows what the current amazing, shiny, cloud-based file storage system is. Yeah. But um, the whole point is that um, if you were to move your application to another server, with those credentials, it should still work. Yeah, that's the acid test, right? Yeah, if I pick up this code and put it over there, will everything still work? If right. anything won't, because it needs to be moved as well, you failed on point four. Yeah, which so that's, us that's, yeah nicely to the different environments. So look, at, so, we're finishing each other's sentences, Rob. It's, uh, uh, it's a Christmas miracle. No, no, I said I was done. <laughs> I, I am right. Okay, so um, point five gone. Uh, it's build, release, and run. So. You have the, we have different actions that happen to our code. So if we're creating a build, what generally happens in that is that we remove all the test files, right? Or because we would have had another another run, which would be like, for example, like run our tests, right? But in our build, we don't want to be spewing out all those, you know, tests, all those 
non-minified version. So we have a build process, and that should be separate from our release and our running process, right? Uh, or, yeah. or environment, I should say. But we'd have these stages that we know that we've passed a build, and here you go, here's our, our actual build object, and here's our release um, process, which gets that built object and goes somewhere else. In other words, use Jenkins. <laughs> yeah, or, or, or any something other that either. handles your build pipeline. Um, right. Bid the key thing has here is build even, if you, even if you have a language that is not compiled, you still mm -hmm. have a build stage. It's where you um, update your dependencies. It's where you run your um, you know, your pre-flight testing. It's where you compile over your static assets. That's all build, right? So even in the world of PHP, <clears throat> which is like the anti-compiled um, language. There's um, a runtime yeah. language, the same as, yeah, I guess, ColdFusion. But... Yep, absolutely. Uh, I mean, I suppose ColdFusion does actually have the ability, as I understand it, to, you can package, right? Yeah, you can. Yeah. Well, it can be pre-compiled. I mean, and it compiles pretty quickly to bytecode. So, the best example I've got, if you want to see how this works perfectly every single time, look at Heroku, and look at what Heroku does when you deploy um, a, a new version of your application. Tail the logs in Heroku, and I think we talk a bit more about logs in a moment, and watch it because it literally does, the deployment goes up, it pulls in all the dependencies, it compiles the application, it verifies the application is good, it then releases the application into the running production, the runtime stage, that's the release stage, and it then tears down the old runtime. Right. And it does this atomically and cleanly every single time you do a release. And it's amazing. Right. I mean, the other part is, is that the running environment is... For example, the live will be configured one way with security on one set. We've said that all these environments have to be the same, but when we talk about like build, uh, run and deploy, or sort of build, release and run, I beg your pardon, they have like different memory requirements. They have different, you know, you're not running the same code. I mean, the build process, let's say if it's a compilation of a Java app, needs different kind of, uh, you know, maybe less resources because you don't have to be running stuff so quickly or whatever, right? So you can have different environments for all of these. Yeah. Um, and don't forget that your your you know runtime may actually span multiple servers. Right. Um, yeah, it, it, it could be a much more complicated thing than what happens on your local development environment where you've got one copy of the code base all ni nicely managed, the environment's all there. Um, but yeah, so the configuration can be very different. Um, and having these separated out means that you, the main thing here is it means that at any point you have the ability to determine failure. Right. So if something fails in build, well, you don't release exactly. it. Um, if something fails during the release, if you can't roll out a certain box or whatever, um, then in theory you can either pull that box or you know the release hasn't happened yet, it should be yeah. atomic. Obviously, if something fails in runtime, then we're into different problems. But this is all about putting checks and balances into the deployment process. And it allows us to be much more confident in our deployment process. We can do more deploys, which takes us back to the first point. Um, right. So it's really, really important that even if these, these, these stages can be really light, you know, it may well be that actually your build stage doesn't have much in it. It's like, well, I run update packages and I can pass some static assets. Is that still a build stage? Yes, yes it is. And make sure it's worked. Because there might be other stuff, um, like for example, some of the build stages of, that uh, I've seen 
are not just about your code. They're more about like, okay, so like this build stage, we're gonna get the database ready for for this release, right? So they go and get the data, they mm -hmm. create like a, a an update file saying, okay, well, these are the differences. This is an update file. It might be a raking thing in, in Rails. It might be like a, a deployment <laughs> thing in, 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 in another environment saying, okay, look, we're gonna copy the database over or or whatever, yeah. Yeah, so you run some, some scripts and migrations to update it, maybe some data gets inserted or, or you know, backfilled into the application, or maybe some data gets removed yep. um, because it's no longer required or, or you know. Um, you may well have a, um, well, actually you don't, and, and we'll talk about why you don't have general maintenance tasks running as part of this process uh, in a moment. Um, but yeah, so there, there can be all sorts of additional little pre-flight steps and, and what have you that get built in. But it's really important that you've isolated these three specific stages. Your application is either in build, it is being released, or it is running. Right. And this brings us, like, part of the running brings us to the next part, which is processes, right? So, yeah. so your running application should be able to run multiple copies of itself, essentially. Yeah. Um, so the, the terminology that they use on 12factor.net on, uh, um, is one or more stateless processes. The key word there, by the way, is not processes, it's stateless. Right. Is the fact that um, each version of your website, for example, I, I equate this to like uh, load balancing, right? So your website should be able to handle, or your web app, I beg your pardon, should be able to handle different requests and round robin requests. It shouldn't really care yeah. which one it is. It says like, this person wanted to do this. And if when you click the main page, it could go to one server or one process, when you click the next link, it should be able to go to another process and work seamlessly. I think, I mean, we come on to concurrency in a moment, um, but the, again, there's a, a key takeaway here, which is making sure that actually, whether it's one or more, it doesn't matter, um, but the idea that your application can exist in one to N new processes is the key requirement here. Yeah. They're stateless and they share as little as possible. Ideally, they share nothing. So <laughs> there is data isn't stored in memory on a machine. Your session data isn't just stored uh, uh, there. It's hauled off to a, a or to a cache server, um, which is an external or, resource yeah. <laughs> and has attached external resource. Exactly. Yeah. Um, file system, as we spoke about before, you shouldn't be writing files back to that specific server because only processes on that server can access it. Um, you shouldn't have anything that's memory locked to a specific process. It should be as dissipa dissipated as possible right. um, to allow access um, from all of them. Again, there's a couple of really good indications of, of um, I suppose, not code smell, app smell, app smell. architecture smell um, here, which is if you have to configure sticky sessions or something uh -huh. like that to get your application working, you have not achieved um, stateless processes. The other thing that you pointed out, because I immediately jumped in and I was like, oh, yeah, I totally get this. It, it means use processes, not threads. Um, and No, it doesn't mean that at all, no. does it? I mean, a process means that you can, because the process itself can manage its own concurrency model with, with threads or event model or whatever you want it, or whatever it is, depending on your programming language, right? Yeah, so it's not internally. It's not that, oh, no, you mustn't use threads. No, knock yourself out. But whatever you do with those threads and with that concurrency module should also be able to be copied and cloned out as many times as yep. needed. And this is how you scale your apps. I mean, and getting into that practice means that your application can be scalable. And as we've learned 
in in many environments and very many stories is is when people fail um many many years ago i worked this is before we had the the whole uh idea of the cloud or anything like that we worked uh for a company that managed interflora's hardware so we looked up as in the the floral delivery flower right delivery this people. was back in the early 2000s late 90s to early 2000s and they had like hundreds of thousands of pounds worth of hardware which was like a couple of big sun sparks you know you know so that we have redundancy we had two of them wow next to each other in the same building um yes i know but it, it was it was a, a more naive time now they had all this hardware that literally most of the time pegged at like one percent zero between zero and one percent of usage apart from mother's day and christmas right that and you know it would be mother's day, oh, valentine's day, day big pardon, not not christmas i'm thinking i've got christmas in the head it's valentine's day and mother's day suddenly th- those two machines like were you know really scaled up and it was just for that one day that we had these massive like hundred thousand pound machines your app will experience things, those kind of things, and you need to be able to scale them. Now, we have the wonderful Elastic Clouds out there that allow us to do that, but you have to have architected your app for that. The next part is port binding. This is actually a really simple thing, and I do it all the time, and I didn't realize it was part of the 12-factor application part, but it's, it's a good practice being able to just have the same application running on different ports, and that all your um, you know, all, all your services are, are, are discovered by just different ports. So you can have the multiple instances of the same service running on the same machine, on the same hardware, just on a different port. And that's the only difference mm-hmm. in it. It's a bit more complicated than that. Ah. <clears throat> Damn it. Aha. Um, but to be honest, the reason it's a bit more complicated than that is when it comes to things like web server configuration, um, and standard patterns for web server configuration. So there was a classic model, and I'm afraid I'm going to talk about PHP again, but it's the best example I've got of this because it is the de facto standard for deploying PHP uh, was that you would have Apache as a web server, and that would run a module that was basically effectively kind of, uh, it was live linked into Apache. So your Apache processes ran PHP inside the web server. Oh, right. Right, right. That, process. Was, that yeah. was the old DLL model, um, wasn't it? Uh, it, it was DLL on Windows. On, on Linux, it was That's a, a .so yeah. um, file. So this is the opposite of what we're talking about right. here. So, and it was amazing because it meant okay. that you're like, oh, yeah, well, my app just works. I don't have to worry about binding between my, uh, web, my web server and my application server. And to be honest, Tomcat used to do this as well. There was like a, um, a, a cross-compilation thing for... Um, Mod Java in was it Mod AJP or, wasn't it? I can't remember. Yeah, um, there was anyway. Anything that begins with Mod in Apache does this. There's Mod Ruby, Mod Python, and basically the reason that this is a bad idea, you can't scale your web application, sorry, your web server side without also scaling up your application right. server side. And this is um, where Nginx so, kind of went straight against that, didn't it? Nginx jumps straight in there and it says, well, actually, I don't have modules. Yeah. What I'm really good at is I can proxy like a mean mother um, and I can do fast CGI, but all of this stuff connects over um, a port to the back-end application server. Right. 
And again, lots of, of Java devs were thinking, well, we've been doing that for ages, because I believe that the, the kind of de facto Tomcat deployment was proxy. Yeah, it was using a web server in front and proxy yeah. back, yeah. Um, so, and that's amazing, well done, hats off to the Java guys. Um, but for a lot of other applications, uh, that isn't the case. Um, kind of, it's becoming less and less popular these days to use the module mm -hmm. stuff, I think. You know, um, even you know Ruby's current deployment uh, method uses Puma, which is a perfectly capable web server in its own right, um, but that's eminently proxyable. Um, you know, uh, PHP is, as I say, is now run mostly as fast CGI. Again, watch out for that socket because there is one. Okay, I didn't um, know that. So you can you can connect locally, at which point you're you're mucking up on point and, four. And and Fusion um, and and Lucy have. Ages, and I don't think a lot of people know this because they keep on saying we need to get a, a web server in front of it. It's like, well, it's it's, it's directly accessible via HTTP mm -hmm. on port. Like, I think Cold Fusion is eighty five hundred, and Lucy generally is eighty eight eighty eight, and you just put a a, yeah. a a proxy in front of it, and that's it. You're done. You're you're, you're discovering yeah. stuff via via proxy. You need to you start up another instance. You just change the port. There you go. You now have two, and you get the proxy to load balance amongst them. Ta -da. Now, the other thing here is, you know, exporting services. So if you've built stuff in your application, uh -huh. you want to make sure that your application itself is following the same Okay. Rules, that it's accessible over a specific port. We, you know, there's no real guidance as to whether or not this is um, TCP, UDP, um, but the idea is it has to be accessible via URL, hostname, IP address, and port. Yeah. Otherwise, it does not work. This kind of ties in a little bit with the um, with the backing services, doesn't it? You know, that's oh, exactly how, how. In other words, like make your own application be like a backing service, because in in one way it is to somebody else. Yeah, and it actually frees you up then to say that your application can then become yeah. a backing right. service should it need to. So an internal API or what have you. It becomes a microservice. Um, you know, it, it, oh. No. no. <laughs> Sorry. I mean, it, it can do. Microservices are probably the best example of this because everything has to be accessible and exportable. Right. There is one point here that I would make. Sure. We talked about microservices, um, and there is almost a, a... It's not really an exception. It's kind of a, um, a subtlety, which is don't feel that you absolutely have to interface with your service via a okay. port. You don't have to interface with it at all in some instances. So let's say, for example, the classic microservice queue-backed model, mm -hmm. where you've got PubSub, mm -hmm. right? Sorry, I've been reading a fair bit on this, and I've, I've got a project in the works at the moment which uses this model. Um, here what we have are basically microservices that are accessible via ports and a queue system. Communication between those is via the queue. Okay. Yeah, so it doesn't say that that's a bad thing. Um, however, if there were any direct communication between those processes, it should be via port rather than via something else. Right. And communication with the queue, of course, is over um, TCP port, whatever it is that MQ that sure. on. And of course, like if you had like multiple queues, I guess you could scale those out. They'll just be on different ports. Um, I haven't actually looked at that yet because it's not even close to doing kind of pre-production testing. But, but it's a concept. Different ports, different load balancers. Conceptually, it all works. Right. Obviously, everything works. Just in, don't in feel concept. that. 
Yeah, don't feel that this means that, oh my god, Mark and Rob just told me that we have to port bind everything. We must communicate everything, link them together directly. No. That's not what we're saying. But if you are going to export a service, do it via IP hostname and a port. Simples. Simples. Um, the next part is concurrency, which I kind of touched on. Uh, uh, kind of uh, touched yes. on? Drove a, drove a bulldozer over. <laughs> no. I did um, wheelies with my... Yeah, this goes back to... <laughs> did wheelies with your... Bulldozer. <laughs> oh, nice. Um, it's like the uh, listeners who aren't in the UK will be unaware of um, the concept of a JCB and the fact that they do actually have a team of diggers that dance. Have you <laughs> yeah, ever seen these? That's awesome. Yeah, they're amazing. Hit YouTube. They're all, they're all over it. Anyway, concurrency, we go back to our process model. Mm -hmm. And effectively, it means what? That we can run the same process like all multiple processes at the same time so you can have multiple processes yeah. doing the same thing at the same time so yeah, I'm going to do a, a protracted example for example if you're doing machine learning you might want to divide a picture up in multiple parts and send it up to multiple processes so to divide and conquer or you can have the same process uh, multiple processes handling images one after the other yeah so a simple example is you know you have a web service that um, resizes images and applies um, a watermark, yeah. and it may well be that actually you decide that the web traffic is pretty heavy going because it's quite big. So you need a couple of web servers, and your application service needs I don't know eight at peak load. Um, having these in processes then means that we're back to the ability to scale. So this is Interflora and their sparks. Mm -hmm. They don't need two of them all the time. They can have you know two nice small cloud instances. Uh, and the process model means cross-machine as much as it means you know, multiple processes on one yeah. machine. Um, and the benefit really comes when you're having cross-machine, uh, maybe even uh, cross-region, so that, for example, you could, with your load balancer, you can you know, shape your application to behave you know, to service requests more locally in a region, as an example. And you, but as far as anyone is using a service, it's it's hitting the same thing. Yeah. So I mean, this is like the ultimate. Um, what do they call it in AWS? Is AZ yeah. availability That's zone. Right. Um, so you have your application running in uh, Europe and Ireland. You have it running in the US. You have it running in Asia, um, and you just direct customers from those locations to those places. And in the event that Asia goes offline, you can just steer all of that traffic over to Europe and it's completely fine. Not that AWS ever goes Oh, well, I've had it, yeah, I've Asia. had it gone down and it was a <laughs> switch in Ireland and we had like a whole weekend down. This was a few years back and I had clients shouting at me and I'm going, I can't do anything. I'm not in Ireland. I don't own the, the switch, you know? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, but anyway. So... It's, it's worth looking at and investing in. And again, there's the, the test here is if you're thinking, I couldn't possibly do that, well, then you need to take a step back and look at um, your your um, your processes um, that we talked about. Yeah, and what's locking it, what, so what's holding you back. Statelessness. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And address all of that. Pay it down like stat. Um, the next part, disposability. But I thought it's all about recycling, so This Rob. always makes you me a bit sad. 
that we put all of this love and time and effort into crafting these applications only to make sure that we can throw them away at a notice. <laughs> we don't love you anymore, we, you're gone. No, but this is the whole point. It all comes down to money at the end of the day. The fact that you have a whole bunch of machines running, not doing anything, and being charged for them. I mean, nowadays you don't get charged for the hardware, you get charged for the rental of them, but you're still paying for them, right? Yeah, so we want to make sure that we can um, you know, spin up new instances of our application and clear down old instances quickly and cleanly. And you might be thinking, uh, well, of course you can do that with any application. It's like, ah, can you? Think about what the steps would be to take any application that you're, you're currently working on and put it into a new live environment. Right. Right. I remember one. So run down that shopping yeah. list. I remember one of them was inc included, like put the servers in the back of the car. Ah, <laughs> uh, the good old days. And then drive them yeah, across be, town to, to the new podcast in a decade. Like hard hardware. What is hardware? Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, I mean, I've not quite gone that far for quite a while. Um, but there was um, a fairly interesting one recently where it was like, well, actually, we have to configure a couple of very specific underlying bits on the application, which, by the way, totally dependencies of my application. They were binaries that needed to be installed, but you know, we solved a lot of pain points by taking them out of the application, uh, the operating system rather, uh, and building those in as a, just a, a dependency managed package. Um, and it had to install a bunch of fonts because it did a whole load of PDF generation. Right. Oh God, PDF. Um, yeah, um, you know, fairly standard requirement for an application. And you think, actually, the sticking point on that application, it wasn't the code, it was fairly straightforward. Uh, and, you know, I write decent mm -hmm. enough code. It was the fact that every time we deployed, we'd forget a font. Uh. Um, and all of a sudden, we'd be getting phone calls from customers saying, well, I, I was trying to download this report in this language, whether it was, t I think the, w the worst one was Thai. Um, I said, why are you? Doing? In fact, we're not even going to ask. Yeah, we forgot to install the Thai font. Sorry, and it all worked beautifully on their browser. Yeah, but the report, of course, just came down with a load of little boxes with question marks in it. So, that as a sorry, rather protracted example um, is if we want to not only quickly spin up, it's not just about starting the application; it's about making sure that the application is good to go from a cold standing start. How quickly can you build your application, and how quickly can you tear it right. down? I mean, nowadays with Docker, that's kind of like a, a fairly quick process, and the fact that it's been torn down, and that the volumes have been destroyed, it, in, and the tearing down also involves like getting rid of evidence that you were ever there, you know, yeah. <laughs> getting rid of all those temp files because you might want to redeploy something again, and if it's using the same folder structure or something, whatever however your app is built. Having like a partial file there that was like could could lead to like weirdness because you'd be like, hey, you know, I don't know how you're processing stuff, but let's say part of your workflow is writing interim steps. You know, it's it's literally cleaning up cleaning up after itself. Yeah, make sure that you've released any handle locks that you might have, um, that you've closed any network connections. Um, you know that your your DB connection pool's been properly shut down. Um, realistically, once your app has stopped running, it should be as if it were never yeah. there, except for all the lovely data and happy customers that they Yeah, saying, oh my god, your application runs so quickly and buttery. I think it's interesting that you say that you know we've now got Docker 
for this stuff. The tools have improved, but they've been there for a while. Yeah. And just saying, oh, well, we use Docker, we're doing this. No, you're not. Right? It requires a fair amount of thought and planning. And you need to make sure that, you know, if you can't take your Docker file or your your um, Docker build file um, and literally click go and spin up an entire environment with everything you need, you're not doing this yet. Yeah. This leads us on, like, I mean, now that we're talking about Docker and stuff like that, this literally leads us on to the dev production parity. And we kind of said against this a little bit saying oh well you know your development environment is different from your live environment but you should have as much parity as you possibly can afford now uh, yeah and i would go one step further which is to say that actually your development environment the underlying stuff should be as identical as it can mm -hmm. be and your development environment should have additions that make sense in development sure your production environment should have optimizations that only make sense in production. Right. And normally, those are actually optimizations that are just not available in development because you've added things like profiling or debugging. Mm. Or, or caching. Um, anyway, we'll, we'll come back to this. Yeah, or in, caching. In the live environment, right? But even then, you know, do, do you actually really want to develop in, um, on an application where you know that you've got all sorts of caching running in production and not have that caching running in dev? Well... Well, yeah, because in dev, you're, like, changing code all the time, like, literally. Oh, code, yeah, so class caching yeah. and, and what have you. Yeah, but if you've got caching running, say, um, you know, on, on um, query cache or, you know, actual memcached-backed stuff, you need that in development. But you need to configure Otherwise, it. you're not going to spot yeah, um, weirdy race conditions. Yeah. Straight. <laughs> yeah. But you need to be able to configure that. I was just thinking that because it, Lucy has a lovely function, which you can say... Uh, lovely functionality that you can say that a function is cached so for the inputs mm -hmm. that go into that function the outputs remain the same if they if the inputs hash you know if the input hash is equal to to uh, it becomes a hash key essentially right so that's fantastic yeah. because if you have like these one we have like a function that goes and gets a configuration each time and that's actually accessing an external service but you, but that's for every request and you don't want to be hitting that external service or something that doesn't change very much throughout the life cycle, right? Yeah. Uh, so you can cache that for 10 minutes or 15 minutes and every 10 or 15 minutes because is there an update? All right, fine. And you can do that, right? But okay. Yeah. Um, could I ask a SME oh, question? I haven't actually used okay. this. How does that work where you've got changing internals in your function? Um, but but so you should really most, most of your functions should days. be non- there's a term for this, and I'm blanking at the moment of recording, but is that your function should be unmutable. In other words, what if whenever you put A it's in, you always get B out. Fair enough. So if we've written the function right, but a good example of what I'm saying, which is that you don't want to have caching necessarily turned off in development, is let's say you've written a function that adds days to today's date time. Sure. And its input argument is like, well, I'm going to do this right. I'm going to have an input argument to the number of days I want yeah. to add. And then you turn function caching on. And I don't know if this is true or not, by the mm -hmm. way, so um, please don't shout at me, the Lucy dev team, um, if you've already thought of this. No, um, they haven't. Basically, but, you'd get the wrong day once today has changed. Yeah. Oh. Um, so if you've got 24-hour caching on functions, then potentially you've got a, a condition that you need to check. Right. Anyway, we're getting a bit well, off you'd, point. You'd put in, like, in theory, the, the, the way around that is you put in the date and the number of days. Yeah, so it would be two arguments into yeah. the function, right? And that would then be immutable. It would be correctly written code. Yeah. My point is that it's a good 
example of where actually having almost complete parity between development and production is really important. Right. Because if you only have that caching switched on in production and you don't have it switched on in development, you will never catch that bug until it goes in, in, into your production. And that's program. a very good example. You're right. Um, and we can do that. So how do we do this? <laughs> how do we do it, Rob? I don't know. Oh. Well, in the old days, it was difficult because uh, it's like a server cost real, you know, lots of money. Uh, and uh, I remember having discussions with, with, with clients saying, like, you, look, your staging server at least has to, you know, that we're testing everything on because it has to be nearly as identical as, as, as identical as a production one. Like, I'm not buying two production servers. And you're like, well... Yeah, so you've got like a power edge, whatever it is, humming away in a data center somewhere that cost them like ten yeah. grand. Um, the development server is an old Dell desktop yeah. that they found in a storage cupboard. Yeah, it'll do. It'll um, do, little piggy. That'll do. Yeah, it's running Windows ninety five. Yeah. But you see what I mean. Um, in the olden yeah. days, it was it was an actual issue, and that was a bit that, apart from testing, everyone used to drop out of the out of the 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 project, right? From these days, but well, from these days, and and I think leading from that, you have this idea of doing Docker and Vagrant. Vagrant, not so much, maybe uh, um, because I've moved to Docker. Vagrant wasn't I, the issues I had with Vagrant was that that wasn't an identical live environment because when I was using Vagrant, it was a developer's friend rather than a live friend. You know? Yeah, I think that's that's fair enough. But to be honest, the big thing that got me was it got you a lot closer. Yeah. So, you know, if you're working on a Mac, um, and let's face it, I am, mm -hmm. you are, um, or you're working on a, a Windows machine or whatever, um, the versions of stuff that you can install via Homebrew are probably not the same versions of stuff that you have running in production. Right. And it's got different underlying bits and pieces. You know, the file system structure is different. The um, uh, Not so much the, the ports and what have you, but, yeah, it's basically it's sufficiently different that you can run into problems. Heaven for Fend, you are developing on a Windows environment and then shipping it into a Nix environment because then you've got case sensitivity, oh God, yeah. you've got file path differences, all of this You know, stuff. case sensitivity They're actually bit me between Mac and uh, Linux, I think, at one point. Yeah, there's an annoying Git thing, yeah. um, which I think the Git developers actually fixed. Hopefully, which is changing the case, um, right? Because I haven't seen it for a while. But yeah, there used to be a, a problem where you know Git would be case insensitive because it was on a Mac, and Mac is case insensitive technically. And yeah, anyway, the point was that I suppose Vagrant got you a bit closer in that you could say, well, actually, I'm running Ubuntu 14.4 or 16.4 in production. It's running this version of MySQL. It's running this version of uh, the JVM. It, yeah, and in my development environment, I have a virtual Ubuntu 16.4 running the same version of MySQL, the same JVM. In theory, you've removed an awful lot of potential differences and divergences. But I agree, taking those vagrant files and actually putting them into production was really, really hard because it meant that you had to be using something like Chef or Puppet or Ansible to build your vagrant configurations. Some people did, mm -hmm. you know, power to yeah. you. But the rest of us just thought, well, screw this for a game of soldiers. Ooh, Docker, shiny. Yeah. And now it's Kubernetes and Docker and, and various other things. But um, but Docker at least gets us a long way there because you can literally say, well, let's run the container that actually runs in live. Check it out, run <laughs> it, and you know replicate the, the error literally from the container as an example, right? So you got this pretty similar parity. Um, yeah. well, once you're doing checking those containers, how do you go about checking them, Rob? <laughs> 
Uh, well, you take the lid off the container <laughs> and you have a look inside. And inside, sloshing about inside all of these lovely containers are, well, should be, if you've done this right, lots of logs. Oh, God, so many beautiful logs. The logs slosh. Because generally when you're running rumble, uh, a production system, a lot of stuff goes to the standard out. So, for example, in the Java world or the Tomcat world, there's Catalina.out. And if you start up a do mm -hmm. Docker container with the minus IT in the interactive terminal um, stuff, or ITTY, whatever you call it, um, you start getting the output from standard out, right? And it's just getting spat to your screen. But if you have 10 containers running your application and an error happens on one of them, how the hell do you know what's happened? Right. Yeah. So, um, I mean, let's take a step back before we get into that very specific um, but very real issue. How many times, Mark, when you are developing, do you not have either standard out or your applications logs or your server logs or possibly all three being tailed on your screen in a terminal window? Uh, most of the time, it's, I've got. Yeah, it's. That's why you have a d double screen. That That's why you have two screens, yeah. right? All the screens, you can split terminals and what have you. But fundamentally, developers know this. They love log files. Where things get interesting is in development, we're all about the log files. We're like, we turn the debug logging on. We've got data coming out of our ears and what have you. And we've got all sorts of stuff. The minute we put it into production, there seems to be this kind of knee jerk. It's like, well, we don't. It's in production now. Uh, we don't need to worry about logs. We'll just we'll just leave them. And this is where you yeah. no no, don't do that. <laughs> if the log files are valuable in development, they're going to be just as, if not more, valuable in production because they're going to alert you to all sorts of odd conditions that you don't get in your development environment. Because real users are weird, and some users are mean and bad. Um, so the the point about logs is we treat them as streams of valuable event data. Right. And in a 12-factor app, logs should be important, but they should not be treated anywhere, anything differently. In other words, they should be just streamed out to the standard out, because it's not up to your application right, mm -hmm. uh, to manage the logs. Is up to the um, environment in which your application is going to be developed, uh, deployed, to manage that. So, like at number eleven, treat logs as event streams. In other words, instead of writing it just to, to the file, write it write it to the standard out, because then it can be gathered up and lovingly inserted into a centralized logging system. Um, one of them yep. that I've used is called Elk for short, which is actually a combination of Elasticsearch, Logstash, and Kibana. Now, Logstash is, uh, 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 it just eats logs. It manages to convert them into a standard format. That's all that Logstash does. It just grabs them, converts them into, into a standard format that it can then throw into Elasticsearch. And then uh, Elasticsearch is, by its name, a good way of searching through stuff. Obviously, Mark. Thanks yeah, so very much. It's a, a Lucene-based yeah. or Solar-based? Uh, so, well, it's Lucene. Um, Solar is a server version of Lucene. I always get yeah. this wrong. Um, but anyway, those two, it's based on that, and it makes it searches really, really yeah. fast through lots and lots of stuff, and it searches unstructured data yeah. really well. And log files, generally speaking, are unstructured. And, and Kibana's... 
a cool interface onto right. it. Right. Yeah. So Logsearch structures the data, stores it into Elasticsearch for searching, and Kibana is like the query interface to make your your dashboards and and queries onto that that log data. Uh, which I'll the nice thing about these yep. three, just to say, is because fair enough in the Unix environment, I've done it many many times. I'm sure you have as well. Um, you already have a really good syslog system. Um, and it can, you know, you may not realize this, but syslog can broadcast over UDP. It can send syslogs from very many different machines to a central logging server and what have you. And that's great until some genius decides that we need a Windows uh, server in the mix, um, which doesn't have the same tooling. Right. Oh, it does, but it doesn't have compatible tooling. And then all of a sudden you're in a world of hurt. ELK is um, operating system agnostic. Yep. So you can have log files that come straight out of your application. You can have log files that are coming out of the underlying OS, out of the database server, and they can all be pulled through the same system. Yeah. And in, in the 12-factor app, what you should be doing is saying like, uh, and, and I've encountered this recently because, for example, Lucy and ColdFusion have historically had a logs folder, obviously, that have a whole bunch of different logs, right? So they have the mail log. So whenever you send out an email, it's, uh, it says, okay, I've sent an, an email, or there was a problem sending that email. You've got the exception log, which, well, does the exception log. You've also got the application log that logs anything that you're doing traces for, or if you just use a log function within within Lucy, it will just write it there. Uh, and then there's, a, uh, I think, the deployment log. And I'm not going to list them all, but there's a whole bunch of logs in there that the system uses. That's great, but the first thing that you have to do for your 12-factor app is actually change them all to standard out. So they're all just spitting out to the console, right? Yeah. Um, so then Elk and, and your system admin will then go and reap all of that data, and then you can start saying, well, actually, container number 44 at this point had this error. So you can then start seeing problems across your your fleet of containers or your fleet of, that are serving your application because it gets massively more complicated to search for errors uh, when you've got multiple machines that are spitting this out. So you need a centralized logging solution. Um, sorry, this bit me yep. recently, so. <laughs> it's, it's fine. The other thing I would say is that uh, if we take a, a quick step back, that um, by writing your logs to standard out, you are maintaining statelessness. Right. Because log files are state. Yeah. You know, they, they might be fairly useless state until you need them, um, but they exist on a specific server, and unless you find some way of getting them aggregated and backhauled off, you're, you're stuck with them. So why not just start by saying, no, we are not going to write these two files on the disk. We are going to just push these to standard out and then have something else handle aggregating them and, and archiving them and managing mm -hmm. them. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. And the other thing I would say is if you are... Well, I, if you are the developer out there who has never needed to review log files in production to solve a problem, then please send us a tweet. I would love to hear from you. I will buy you. <laughs> For the rest of us, we all know just how valuable this data is. So this, whilst you might think, oh, logs, you know, log files, whatever. And learning um, to read log files is, is a really important key. one as well. The first Linux command that I was taught by my, my, my Linux sensei was tail-f. So if you can follow the logs, you can pretty much work out what the hell else is going wrong. And that does hold You true. know what blew my mind recently? That there's, I've, I've known tail-f for, for years because, as you say, it's the first command that you're taught. Uh, recently I found out that there's a head <laughs> that, that's, that reads the beginning part of a file. 
Yeah. yeah. I mean, obviously there is, right? But uh, yeah, my shame. And finally, in our 12, our countdown of the 12 factor app um, factors. Uh, can, can, can you hear jingle bells? The Santa coming to deliver to coming. our last present. And Santa is, is bringing with him. Uh, admin processes. So remember we were talking about running in you know se separate you know parts of the build and run stages admin processes should have be run of one off processes right so this administration mm -hmm. process we touched upon it is for example cleaning the database for example up, uh, migrating the database i can't think of any other examples maybe clearing out um you know log data in your database uh, Oh, I have one. Well, swap it. Let's say, uh, you know, a classic example is, and a lot of this is database driven, but um, you've got um, an application that has a whole load of different locations, and one of those locations actually gets shut down and all of its services move over to another location. Mm -hmm. So you've now got foreign queue relationships that need to be updated, but you've also got caching on that, and those caches also need to be purged. Right. So you've got this kind of whole chunk of fairly classic maintenance and you've got some data changes and whatnot the key thing about point 12 is that they should be run as a one-off process do not build them into your application which is not to say that they don't have access to your application right uh, so for example this could be like a, in a REPL that has access to your to your data and script they could just invoke it um, mm -hmm. and just run it Right, and it's done. Yep, gone out. Um, and they should run against a specific release of it, right? So you should run it very much in uh, the same environment yeah. um, as the live application against a specific release of the application. So they shouldn't just be like completely isolated. We're not talking about oh, I'll just write a, a quick Python script just to do it. No, no, you want to run it as as part of your app, but you don't want it accessible via the web, for example. You, you want them just to be able to run it from the CLI. Right. You have to SSH into um, the machine, you have to go through all the security processes, right? Yeah, yeah. or use whatever system you're using to remotely admin. Um, and the reason that this is important, any guesses? Gone. <laughs> Effectively, it allows you to isolate um, potentially quite dangerous tasks from your core application, and it means that there's no risk that they ever get rerun. Um, you know, certainly database migrations, if they're badly written, can be really destructive if you run them twice. Right. Yeah. You know, best case, you get a bunch of errors. If you're doing data insertion as part of that migration, and you run that twice, well, all of a sudden we've got two New Yorks in the world. <laughs> and who wants that? That's not going to cause any yeah. problems. Um, so it's it's about isolation, it's about separation, and it's about basically making sure that your application is configured to handle this. Again, a lot of different uh, frameworks out there already have it. So with Rails, you've got uh, the rake, um, you know, task uh, generators and what have you. Um, you know, if you're using the Ravel, Symphony, and the PHP world, they've all got one-offs. Python's got, I think, the manage.py convention. Um, and I'm almost certain that there is a cold fusion equivalent for box commands yeah. that can be run. Uh, I mean, you can run most of the stuff in 
from the box command from it. You can create tasks, actually. There's a format for creating yeah. a task that you run. Um, so you could do it from, from box command anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's it. That's it. So that's our 12-factor app. Um, our 12 factors, our 12 of, factors Christmas. of Christmas. Okay, yeah, that, that, that's all. That was a much better title at the end of 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 the show. That's what we're going to talk called the 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 show notes. Uh, that's what we're going to call this the episode. Um, we've had great feedback. We've had uh, an, a very nice email. Someone that, that said that they've uh, listened to the show, really enjoyed it. If you're enjoying listening to the show and you'd like to tell us or give us some ideas for the next season, uh, is it season or is it? I think we can make this yeah, season. seasonal. So this is this has been the 2017 season of the Local Host podcast. If you have ideas for the, for the 2018 season of the Local Host podcast, you should email show at localhost.fm. Uh, we are easily found on Twitter at localhost.fm. I am at Mark Drew on Twitter, so you can tweet us. Um, I'm at Rob Dudley, also on Twitter. <laughs> um and everywhere, and everywhere else. else. I mean, where else will they get? I, th- I hear people are moving away from Twitter. They're moving on to Mastodon. Oh, is this one of these open source distributors? Yes. Never catch on. Free as in speech. Uh, I think I have an account. I have an account. I've forgotten what the account. I've got an account on a lot of these different. Kind of like yeah. we're we're going to revolutionise Twitter by giving it back to the people. Yeah. It's like no, you don't. I, I don't quite understand that the reason Twitter works is a centralised area that everyone like, is, everywhere, where everyone yeah. is. Uh, I um, signed up to one years ago, which was meant to be the the Twitter for creatives, and now all I get is porn spam from it. Uh, nice. I still get people following me on Ello. That was it. Ello was the was the one. Yeah, very very cool, black and white, middle, yeah. uh, very minimal. There were no people, and there was no. Yeah, content. that's pretty minimal. I mean, when you, when you want minimalism, yeah. there you go. So clean. Um, I don't yeah. think we're on Ello. Oh, if if I am, I have no idea how you can find me. We're not. No. I am. Um, I'm, at oh, I'm probably Mark. Don't follow us on Hello. I don't think you're going to get. Uh... I'm not going to follow you back. I haven't logged into it for months. But if you if you fancy a, a spot of light trollage, then feel free. Um... I still get the email notifications. And we shall be putting stuff out onto uh, the YouTube. You can search for our stuff. See, YouTube's much more difficult to find. You know, you can't just say youtube.com slash localhost or something like that. There probably is, but you have to get. We might need to look into that, but yeah, you have to use search yeah, you have to use this search. search for localhost.fm. It's not that much harder, to be fair. Um, yeah, no, you're right. Um, for those of you who want to learn a little bit more about um, twelve-factor applications, uh, we'll put all of these links in the show notes, of course. But you can always visit uh, twelve uh, www dot twelve factor. It's not www. It's the just 12. the number twelve factor dot net. Oh, right. Okay. I'm. I'm only looking at it, and it's got a www. Oh, there. maybe. Maybe. Well, look. <clears throat> look. Yeah. So it's it's one two factor dot net, yeah. um, and they've got basically all the stuff we've spoken about in much more cogent and uh, neater detail, um, and a, a whole bunch of additional resources and links and what have you. And that's it. Well, Merry Grimbo, everyone. Ho ho ho. Yep. Happy Christmas. Wishing you all um, a, an amazing. New Year, and we shall see you in the new year. Maybe uh, we shall see how we do because we started in February. So I wonder if we should just take January off. Well, we'll see how this one goes. Yeah, right. So send feedback, rate us on iTunes, 
And uh, and on that note of begging for your support, please rate us highly and have a happy Christmas. Bye.